0: We're picking up where we left off two weeks ago, and we're looking at Luke 1, 57 through 80 this morning, the end of the first chapter of the birth narratives of our Lord Jesus. And I know uh, it'll help you to have a copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find this on page 856. And again, we're looking at Luke 1, 57 to 80. Let me pray for us briefly before we come to the preaching of God's word this morning. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would strengthen uh, your servant as we come to preach your word this morning. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak a clear word of grace and salvation to your people. We pray that you would preach peace to those who are far off, to those who are wandering in the far country. We pray that you would give us hearts that are full with, of your praise and thanksgiving and giving you the honor and glory to your name. So, Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching and hearing of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, beginning in verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great, great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open, his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has redeemed and visited his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender Mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, or the day spring, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, this week, is the historic solar eclipse. Everybody's talking about it. Are we ready to go out and stand in a field and stare at the sun? It sounds ludicrous. And yet everyone's excited about it, and for a moment, the sun will be darkened, and then we will see, as it were, a second sunrise. We'll see a second sunrise, and everyone will see the light shining through out of the darkness. And we'll all clap. Hopefully, we'll keep our glasses tight on our eyes so we don't burn our retinas, and then we will go home and wait till 2024 to see that again. Um, And as I think about that, and I look at this passage this morning, notice that Zechariah in this last of the great birth narrative songs mentions the day spring on high. Zechariah speaks about Christ as the light of the world, as the one shining forth, breaking out in the midst of the darkness, the long-awaited Redeemer. The long night of darkness is past, the 400 years of silence in which God has not spoken or done, and now Christ has come. The light of the world has appeared, and so Zechariah fittingly mentions this in his song. But you'll notice that really everything in this section is supposed to be about John the Baptist. It's supposed to be about the son that God is giving Zechariah and Elizabeth, the miraculous birth, Mary's cousin Elizabeth in her old age has conceived and and everything about this is the history of the birth of John the Baptist but somehow he gets eclipsed by the greater son his cousin the Redeemer and even a song that this father sings about his son is a song not about his son but about the one to whom his son would point and would be the forerunner. Well, we'll notice this morning just two things. First, Zechariah receives his son from God by faith, and then secondly, he blesses his son by faith in the covenant Lord. Notice that beginning in verse 57, we're told that it's the time for Elizabeth to have her child. Mary has probably gone back home, and Elizabeth is going to bring forth a son, and Everything God had told them by Gabriel is going to happen. Everything is going to occur exactly like God told them. And notice the neighbors and the relatives come, and they rejoice with her. It's a typical birth in some ways. The family is there. They're gathered together. They're rejoicing. The the Lord has brought about a new life and has blessed Zechariah and Elizabeth after so many years of barrenness. And note, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him. Zachariah after his father but his mother said no he shall be called John. Now this is the typical meddling family. They want a little piece of the naming pie. They want to be able to tell Zachariah and Elizabeth what they should do with their son, what they should call him. They have all kinds of ideas you know oftentimes family members are like that. They they love to tell us what we should do with our children, what names we should and shouldn't choose and here it's no different. Uh, the family is there, and they're saying, we're going to call him Zachariah after his father. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. Now remember, uh, Gabriel, the angel, had come and said, you will call his name John. He will be uh, great before the Lord. He will go before the Lord. He will make the Lord's path straight. And, um, and the name John, I don't know if you know this, the name John means... God is merciful. Now, Phil Riken points out, very interesting, Zachariah's name means God remembers. Elizabeth means God is faithful. John means God is merciful. And so, Riken says, there is the sweetest name of all, Jesus, which means God saves. Luke is telling the story of salvation. These people are part of the story. The faithful God. Remember, Zachariah means faithful. The faithful God who shows mercy to sinners has remembered his promise to save. Isn't that amazing? Why did God want them to name John, John? Because God is weaving together his redemptive narrative. He's telling them, this is the story of redemption. This is my story. I am the faithful God who remembers my promises, who has mercy on my people, and who will save them by the coming of Jesus. And so notice once uh, the pressure is on Elizabeth to call her son Zechariah, and she says, no, his name shall be called John. She looks to her husband, who, remember, has been struck speechless to help her out in this case. She goes to her husband, and notice they went, and they gave him a tablet, and he wrote literally John is his name. Now, is going to be able to talk in a minute. The chastening will be done. Uh, God's blessings will abound. We're going to get to the song, all of that's going to happen, but for the moment, the really important thing that we need to see is that Zachariah has decided he will not cave in to the pressure of family members, but he will believe God. That, remember, was the problem Zachariah had at the beginning. He didn't believe the word of God, he didn't take God at his word, and that's why God struck him uh, mute for a time. Zachariah couldn't talk because he didn't believe, but now this little act of faith, think of that, the the writing of a name on a tablet is an act of faith. Just writing, John is his name. I believe God, I'm taking him at his word, I'm trusting him, I'm acting on what he told me, I am believing that God knows better than I know, than my family knows, and I will not cave in. Now there is a massively important word there for us, how many times... Have we had family members, perhaps, who have tempted us to disobey or even in subtle ways have tempted us to turn away from our duties before the Lord or our responsibilities to trust God? Um, family pressure can be some of the worst pressure, for honest, and it can be some of the hardest for us to humbly and believingly obey. It can be some of the most difficult, and here Zachariah sets for us this amazing example of what it means to receive his son and all that God has said about his son from God by faith. He is, in this sense, a model parent. You know, as I thought about this and tried to get the, what's the big picture? It's sometimes hard to get the big bird's eye view of a text. I think Zechariah is being set out as a model parent. Uh, God is saying in this passage, here's what it looks like to be a godly parent. It's one that listens to the word of the Lord in scripture and acts on it in the little things. Notice that one little detail that Luke tells us in verse 59, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. They're obeying God's law. They are are trusting the Lord. They are saying, we will do for our son what God has said he wants for our son. What a word there is for parents like us who are longing to grow in godliness. Notice that the response to Zechariah's faith is that the people now wonder. They're amazed. They, they're astonished that he wouldn't name his son Zachariah. In those days, the normal thing to do would be to give your son uh, the second or the third or the fourth Roman numeral. I know it stops somewhere, but in those days, Zechariah would call his son Zachariah, and so on. And here he's breaking from the family lineage, and he's saying, we are doing what the Lord has told us to do. And notice the people wonder Immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all the neighbors. Now, there's this interesting picture in this passage. Here are all the family members and neighbors, this little town, they've all come together. They're all witnessing these things. They're they're not active participants in any meaningful way. But Luke tells us how they respond. They rejoice, they fear, they wonder. John Calvin, as he reflects on this, um, he says, where were all these people when John, as a grown prophet, was calling everyone back to the Lord? Where were all these people at the foot of the cross? Were they still wondering? Were they still amazed? Or did they let that initial uh, excitement sort of dwindle? I think there's a word there for us that... If Calvin's right, many of these people, all throughout the hill country of Judea, notice verse 65, all who heard them, laid them up in their hearts, but they only did so for a time. It was in passing. It was a a momentary spiritual excitement. Um, Calvin goes on to say we are to uh, vigorously guard against that in our own heart. Notice the people say in verse 66, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? They knew there was something special about John. Now, uh, in the second place, we're going to see Zechariah now blessing John. It's actually sort of an answer to the question, what will this child be? We're going to find out exactly what this child going to be, exactly his purpose in life. Now, uh, the song that we're going to look at is called the Benedictus, the good word. Uh, it's one of the great nativity hymns of the Christian faith and you'll notice that it's called the benedictus the the blessing as it were the the benediction because in verse 68 the first thing that Zechariah says is blessed be the Lord God of Israel he is directing this praise to God for all that God is doing he is Zechariah is in every way in this passage godward god focused god exalting he has he has a right perspective on life he understands that God superintends all things, that no event of his life is outside of God's control, sovereignty, purposes, plans. God is the center of this song. This is not a man-centered song like so many of ours today. This is not about me and how great I am and how great I feel and how great I want to feel. This is Zechariah taking truth. And notice verse 67 By being filled with the Holy Spirit, he is blessing the God of heaven. Now, uh, you've probably already seen this, but in these open chapters, the Holy Spirit is one of the most prominent members of the Godhead. He is always working. Nothing is happening apart from him. Nothing happens in us apart from the Holy Spirit. We can't understand one word that God has spoken apart from the Holy Spirit. We can't praise God the way... God calls us to apart from the Holy Spirit. Um, there is, by way of example here, a word for us that we, too, are to be crying out to be filled with the Spirit so that we, too, might bless the God of Israel. Now, this song, like Mary's song, is going to be divided into three parts. It actually falls very nicely. The first section, he is directing his praise to God for all that God has done throughout redemptive history, all that God has promised to do, the greatness of God fulfilling his purposes, everything that everyone since human history began has been waiting for, God is now doing. And then secondly, he is going to prophesy about his own son. Notice verse 67. He'll say, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and he will speak about John and his purposes. And what God is going to do through him. And then finally, he goes back in verse 77. And he tells us all the benefits of redemption. Everything that God is going to accomplish through Jesus. Now, very interesting. He doesn't even mention his son for eight verses. So, I said already, this is about John the Baptist. At his birth, it's all about the birth of John. John doesn't even get mentioned. Because Zachariah's heart is fixed on the God of redemption. He's fixed on salvation. He's focused on God's purposes and bringing Jesus into the world. He already understands that his son, it's like the moon. When when the moon um, gets in front of the sun, there's a sense where everyone wants the moon to get out of the way. Just move on. We want the light. Uh, John is like the moon reflecting, and, and, and he understands. He understands that this is about the God of Israel, and Notice he says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, I want you to notice there's something very interesting about everything Zechariah says. He says everything in the past tense. He has visited. He has redeemed. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets. He has given us Quote, the mercy he promised, he has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham. Now what's amazing about this is none of this has already been fulfilled. Jesus has not yet died on the cross. Um, Jesus has not yet been born. He's in the womb of Mary. And yet Zechariah is so confident that God is bringing about all his purposes, he can say he has. It's as good as done. That is the essence of the Christian life, by the way, that we take God at his word even when we don't see before our eyes a fulfillment of what he's promised. We believe that Jesus is coming again. We believe that God is going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. We believe in a world to come. We believe in a heaven that we don't see. We believe there's a hell, a real place called hell. We believe all those things. They're all out of our sight, but God has clearly spoken. Um, Very interesting. Jesus will do the same thing that Zechariah is doing here. If you remember in his high priestly prayer in John 17, as he's going to the cross, he says to his father, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. I've already done it. Well, but he hadn't done it. He hadn't been nailed to the tree yet. He hadn't been crowned with thorns yet. He hadn't had his hands and his feet pierced yet. Jesus had not yet been to the cross, and yet he could say, Father, I have already finished the work you've given me to do. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says about this song, Zacharias speaks of these matters as if they had already happened when he says he has visited, he has Redeemed his people. He sees something is happening that is infinitely more important than the birth of one prophet. He sees all of redemptive history in a moment. He sees everything. That's what faith can do for us. It enables us to to look at God's word and to see everything clearly as we're filled with the Spirit. We'll notice as we look at the song. The first thing he says is, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel." For he has visited and redeemed his people. The most important thing in the world is that God has come into this world, fallen and dark and rebellious, hating him, hating others, lost and perishing. He has visited his people. Isn't that a beautiful way? The coming of Jesus into the world is God visiting his people. God making, as it were, the great step and the long trek to come and become like us in order to redeem us. Notice that Zechariah says he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now think for a moment, if you would, of an animal with horns. Their strength is in the horn. When they fight, they use their horns Um, Jesus is the horn of God's salvation. He is the almighty power of God. He is the infinite power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Everything that Jesus does is power. We need power. Jesus is power. What I lack more than anything in my life is power. Why don't I overcome sin more in my life? Because I lack power. Why am I not more joyful? Because I lack power. Why am I not holier? because I lack power. Notice that Zechariah tells us God has, by sending his eternal son, has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. And notice what he says in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Now, Zechariah understands that everything in the Old Testament is about Christ. Um, Every prophecy, every type, every shadow, every ordinance, the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, there's nothing from Genesis to Malachi that's not about Jesus. Um, The last of the Old Testament prophecies, Malachi says, to you who fear my name, the Lord says, I will send the S-U-N, the son of righteousness, and he will rise up with healing in his wings. Zacharias sees that all the prophets... From Enoch in the book of Genesis to Malachi, we're all prophesying about the great horn of salvation, the Redeemer who would come into the world. Notice that in the second place, uh, Zechariah now speaks of his son. We'll come back to look at all the benefits in a moment of redemption. But notice verse 76, he says, you child, all this song is directed about his child. He's directed it to God. He says, blessed Be the Lord God of Israel. But then you learn in verse 76, this is supposed to be about John the Baptist. And he now says, you child, this is the one thing he he knows about his son. You child will be called the prophet of the Most High. Um, All the prophets led up to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets because he stood in the flesh, pointed at Jesus in the flesh, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, John, in the flesh, prophesied of the one that every other prophet spoke of. Notice, Zacharias says of his now infant child, You will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You know, John was so great that um, there was a point where the Pharisees were arguing with Jesus. They were always trying to trap Jesus. My best friend says, it's never a good idea to argue with Jesus. It's a very wise and obvious proverb. Never, never good to argue with Jesus. And, and they were arguing with Jesus, and on one occasion, Jesus said, they asked him a question, they said, by what authority are you doing what you do? And they don't want to believe, they're challenging Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to ask you a question, And you answer me, or else I'm not going to answer you. And uh, I love that. Jesus doesn't just answer people's questions. He said, I'm going to ask you a question. And he says, the baptism of John, so John baptizing people, his, his ministry, was it from heaven or was it from men? And they went over and they had a little unholy huddle. And they were like, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why don't you believe him? Because they knew John pointed to Christ and verified who he was. But, but they said, but if we say for men, the people are going to stone us because the people believe John is a prophet. So everybody knew how great John was. The whole of Israel was flocking to John the Baptist, who was saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message, repent. Confess your sin turn from your sin turn back to the god of israel Here is the great coming lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world Turn back to him And everyone was coming to hear this crazy wilderness dwelling guy who ate locust and Jesus's enemies knew that he was That that he was great before the lord And so they come back to jesus and they say we don't know And jesus says well, then i'm not going to answer you and um, Everything that Zechariah is saying about John the Baptist certainly comes true. He was called the prophet of the Most High. Notice what he says in verse 76, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Imagine for a moment uh, a great king is coming. I know we don't believe in kings in America because we love democracy, but imagine we liked kings like our British friends do, and we understood that kingdoms are more biblical forms a government, and, and a king comes and the king is going to come visit his people. You laugh but you know it's true. And the king is coming and, and a herald goes before him and he gets all the people ready. Um, there's Trumpets, there's announcements, all the people flock, come out of their houses because they want to see the king. That was the work of John the Baptist. He was the herald. He went before the great king of glory and prepared his way. Now, I want us to notice the third element of this song. And most significantly, what is the benefit of Christ coming into the world? Okay, God has been faithful. Great. So what? So what? God told a bunch of people, through a bunch of other people he was going to do something, and now he's making good on that. After thousands of years of waiting, so what? Well, notice that Zechariah gives us the big so what Um, in verse 71. Notice that we should be saved from our enemies. Now, keep in mind, Israel at this period in history is under Roman rule. So the Romans are oppressing Israel. Israel's entire history has been oppression. They were oppressed by Egypt at the beginning, when God created them and called them. They were oppressed by Babylon in the captivity, for their disobedience, and now they're being oppressed by Rome. Do you remember when uh, the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus again? Not smart, and they say to him, "He says, you know, if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed." And and the Pharisees say to him, uh, "We've never been in bondage to anyone." Their whole history was bondage. They're in bondage right now under Roman rule, and and they're so deceived spiritually, they think they're free. Well, Zechariah is not telling us that Christ came to set Israel free from physical captivity. He is telling us that God came to save us from Satan, sin, and death, the great enemies that keep us enslaved Um, the great enemies from whom we can never break free, Satan, sin, and death, the enemies of enemies. Notice, we know that because he says he will save us from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. Now, the covenant God made with Abraham was, I am going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great, You're going to be a blessing. All the nations are going to be blessed in your seed. I'm going to give you land. It's not going to be about the land. It's going to be about the one who comes to the land, the Redeemer. But I'm going to make the nations to be blessed in you, Abraham, even though you don't have an offspring. You're going to have more descendants than the stars in the sky in multitude or the sand on the the seashore. And and. God is saying, I am going to bring spiritual blessing that is going to go beyond your wildest dreams. I'm going to give you everlasting life. You're going to become the heir of the entire world. Remember, Jesus says the meek shall inherit Israel. No, the meek shall inherit the earth. And Jesus is going to secure that inheritance. And God is going to fulfill the promise that he swore to Abraham. And the Apostle Paul is going to tell us everyone who has faith in Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Everyone who believes in the son of Abraham, about whom Zechariah is prophesying, is a a child of God and is a true uh, descendant of Abraham. Notice, Zechariah says, we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness all our days. You know, the great thing that keeps us from serving God the way we should is, is fear. Fear is why so many people do so many wrong things acting on the depravity of their hearts. Um, you know, If we fear death and judgment, we're not going to live um, vibrant Christian lives. And Christ came into the world to destroy death by his death. How can I not fear death? That's the great question, isn't it? How can I face my imminent death and how can I not be afraid? That, that I'm not going to enter into judgment, that God's not going to enter into judgment with me once I die, that God's not going to hold all the wrong I've done against me. How, how, how can I know that? And the writer of Hebrews tells us that just as the children partook of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death, through the death of Jesus on the cross, he might destroy him who had the power of death and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime Subject to bondage. I think I've told you this story. Um, many years ago, I was doing evangelism in New Jersey uh, at the Boardwalk, Jersey Shore, evangelism. And, uh, and um, I met this guy, and I said, you know, we're out sharing the gospel, and can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, if, if you died tonight, and he said, oh, I'm terrified. I, I thought he was joking, because I've never had anybody say it so straightforwardly, and I said, are you just messing around? He said, no, I think about it all the time. I think about my death incessantly. He said, in fact, my friends tell me to be quiet because I talk about it so much when we're hanging out, and they're like, dude, you're like seriously uh, damping the mood, like we're not having fun anymore, and his buddy was there, and, and he said, hey, Carlos, come over here, and he grabbed his friend, and he came over, and He said, tell this guy, uh, don't I talk about death and being afraid of death all the time? And he goes, yeah, dude, he won't shut up about it. He's always talking about death. And, And that gave me the opportunity to say, look, the Bible says that that's man's great enemy, fear of death. And God says here that with Christ coming into the world with Jesus, living the life that we couldn't live, with Jesus taking our sins on himself and breaking the power of sin, with Jesus doing everything that we need in himself and rising on the third day and ascending into heaven, notice that one of the benefits of redemption is that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve God now without fear in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. God is intent on conforming his people to his image. God is intent on renewing the image that we lost. You know, when God created man in the beginning, he created him with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. The Apostle Paul tells us that in Ephesians and Colossians. He says, what was man like in the beginning? He, was, he had perfect knowledge of God, though limited. He was holy, and he was righteous. He, he did what was right and good and pleasing to God. He reflected the holiness of God. He lived in the presence of God. And when the fall comes, we lose knowledge, we lose righteousness, and we lose holiness. And now we are not born with the knowledge of God. I like to say to people, if, if everybody was born knowing God and communing with God and just had that in themselves, um, they would be praying from infancy, nonstop. You know, even Christians struggle with prayer. Even people who have the Holy Spirit struggle with prayer. Even people who can pray because they have the knowledge of God struggle. But notice what Zechariah tells us is that because Christ is coming, we're going to know God. We're going to be able to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You know, this past week, uh, social media sort of exploded um, in an unhelpful way. And um, just about everybody had an opinion about Charlottesville, social justice, the responsibility of Christians, the responsibility of citizens, um, how horrible white supremacy is. I hope you know how horrible it is. Um, But what was noticeably absent from the majority of people online, and certainly from the news, is that no one was saying, you know, man's greatest need is to know God, be reconciled to God, be conformed to the image of God. And let me note Have our sins forgiven. Notice verse 77. One of the great benefits. Christ is going to come. John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for the one who's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. I need my sins forgiven. That's the greatest need. It's not saying social activism is bad in all its shapes and forms. But the greatest need everyone needs, including white supremacists is to know that there can be forgiveness in Christ, that they can have all their sins forgiven. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how perverse your sin has been. It doesn't matter how many times you've sinned. If you are in Jesus, there is full and free forgiveness. And that should make our hearts rejoice. That God has said, I will blot out your iniquities. On judgment day, I will not hold your sins before you. Because I put them on my son, and he took all of the wrath of God that we deserve. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that, that we could hear his cry, Father, forgive them. And hear the response, I have forgiven my people through your blood for all of eternity. I mean, that, what can be greater than the living God against whom we've sinned, saying, I forgive you. I've blotted out your iniquities. And notice, as Zechariah kind of walks down, there's these crescendos in this song, and then he walks down to these sweet, tender notes like an orchestra coming to a quiet uh, ending. Notice, he says, because of the tender mercies of our God. Isn't that amazing? The God who is infinite in power, who should crush us for our sins, is full of tender mercy. That's mind-blowing. Is that not mind-blowing? The infinitely holy God who sends sinners to hell if they're not trusting in his son. That same God is full of tender mercies. He has, he has large mercies for his people. He, he delights in, in Micah. He says, the Lord says he delights in mercy. Mercy is undeserved favor. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is him not treating us as he ought to treat us. Oh, please, Lord, make me no tender mercies. Um, Zechariah says because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now um, you know all of these things really come down to us needing Jesus as the light of the world. I'm going to tell you a story I was I was 18. I'd been out all night doing drugs. I came home. I got like two hours of sleep. My dad got me up. And, uh, and he said, sit down. We're going to do family worship. Nothing worse than family worship when you've been out doing drugs all night. And, uh, and the first verse, I'll never forget. The first verse, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who walks in darkness yet follows me shall have the light of life. And I remember thinking, though I wasn't converted for six years after that, I remember thinking, I'm in darkness, and I need the light of the world. Now, Jesus is the only light. Just like the sun is the only real source of light for us. The stars are not enough a source of light. Jesus is the sun of righteousness. He is the day spring on high. If you are curious enough to go out in a field and stare at the sun i'm thinking i'm foolish to do that but but if you are we should think about jesus being the light of the world god has given us a son so that we would remember the one who is the only light the only source of righteousness and holiness the only one that dispels darkness in our hearts through his death and isn't it interesting that when jesus dies on the cross the sun is darkened there's a solar eclipse And darkness covers the whole face of the earth. One old writer, Dionysius, believed to have been Dionysius, said, either the God of heaven suffers or creation is coming off its hinges when the darkness covered the land. Remember, darkness was a plague God sent in Egypt. It was a covenant curse um, he warned Israel about. And when Jesus hung on the cross, when the light of the world took all of our darkness all of our sin and rebellion in order to give us all of this that we've heard about. The sun was darkened. The wrath of God was poured out on him. And now, and now he gives light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I want to ask you today, where are you in all of this? Um, As you examine your life, your actions, are you recognizing that the God of Israel, the covenant Lord who keeps his promises is um, the the God you need more than anything, That, that you need to be praising him and blessing him. If we, you know, if we go through our days and we're not blessing God, there's something seriously wrong in our hearts. If we're going through our days and we're not thanking God and we're not praising him and we're not meditating on his word, that's a litmus test that there's something wrong in our hearts. And then I'd ask if as you look at this, if you're recognizing that your greatest need is to live before God, to serve him, to, to live for him in holiness and righteousness without fear, and that you need your sins forgiven. You know, I often think about this because so many of my sermons come down to, are you in Christ? Do you have your sins forgiven? Have you trusted in Jesus? And, and sometimes I think, you know, I feel like I'm preaching the same sermon because it's the same message. And and we need it, and we need to ask ourselves every day, am I trusting in him? Do I have my sins forgiven? Am I confessing my sins to him? Am I crying out for the light of his presence? Am I crying out for him to have mercy on me? Am I seeing that Jesus is the tender mercy of our God? I want to encourage you as you ask those questions to deal honestly with yourself, to get on your knees, to cry out to the Lord. Let him who has ears to hear hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make these things the greatest truths to our hearts. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be the light of the world to us. We pray that you would shine the light of the gospel into our dark hearts. We pray that you would forgive us, Lord, of the many ways that we have sinned against you. We pray, our God, that you would build us up and give us great joy and confidence like Zachariah. We pray that you would give us a new song in our mouths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.